Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange. This is Hugh Ballou and Russell Dennis, your hosts. As usual, Russell, how are you on this? It's probably a cold day in Colorado today, isn't it? Well, it's warmer than it was yesterday, and the sun is shining. Uh, yesterday at noon, it was snowing, and now we've got blue sky. Well, I bet wherever Russell is, it's sunshine. We have a, a guest today who's a, a founder of a nonprofit, and um, she's going to talk about her journey. There's, there's a number of things that uh, she'll be sharing with us today, and this is uh, someone you know. Uh, Hey, John, from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, so, Mary Putnam, you founded an organization named what? The Reciprocity Collective. And it's a mouthful. <laughs> All right. Tell us about yourself, your journey, and what, you know, what prepared you to do this, and what was your inspiration for founding this nonprofit? So, welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange, Mary Putnam. Well, thank you. Thank you. So, um, as you mentioned, my name is Mary Putman. Uh, I actually live in Denver, Colorado. I, after 35 years in the restaurant business as a restaurateur and chef and business consultant, um, had kind of a midlife crisis, I guess, where I looked at what I was doing and felt like people, I, I would like to have my life have more meaning. I'd like to feel more connected to the issues that I see around me and, and ways that I can help. And I was fortunate at that moment that um, an opportunity came forward to work with the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, which is a large nonprofit here in Denver that um, has all kinds of services for homeless. And they hired me to um, develop a social enterprise and a program that would be a restaurant, a working restaurant, that hired um, their, 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 the clients of the coalition. So these were folks that had experienced homelessness. And we would hire them and have them work for us for a while. We'd teach them skills and then transition them to employment in the community and have kind of a revolving door of folks that we were working with. So when that opportunity presented itself, I jumped all over it. I thought, okay. This, this is really what, how I can use my skills to, for greater good. And um, that started a journey in 2011 that has been the most powerful and life-changing journey of my life. Um, what I thought I was going to be involved in and what I was going to experience and see was only a fraction of what I actually uh, welcomed into my life at that point. You know, we all have kind of a sense, if we haven't ourselves experienced homelessness, we have a sense of, well, we think we know what it, homelessness is. We, we think we what, know what it lives, means to live in poverty. But until you are working or ex closely involved with people who have gone through that experience, you really have no idea of the layers of complexity and the challenges that individuals who have those experiences have every day uh, around employment, around housing, around health, uh, around sense of well-being. So 
I entered this arena in the employment sector, uh, starting a social enterprise where we were employing folks that had experienced homelessness. And I realized very early on that the job skills were the least of what we really needed to guide these folks with. Um, that the challenges that they faced were not learning the skills of a job. It was learning how to kind of come forward from what their experiences were and how they affected them. And that's when I first learned the phrase trauma-informed care. And um, powerful stuff. Uh, first heard it, I was like, well, what, what is that? Uh, and then, you know, we think of trauma in terms of PTSD. Most of us, at least until fairly recently, have thought of trauma as a combat-related uh, experience and or very dramatic uh, experience and trauma takes all kinds of amazing forms and where it shows with folks it could be even it could be having an alcoholic parent it could be having just an unsafe home environment where you witnessed abuse it could be that it always is the experience of homelessness it could be a mental illness and then how that shows itself to the world and how you are treated as a result of it. Trauma can be generational from generational poverty. It can be from living in a society where racial equity is not present and, and you yourself are a person of color. So, and, and trauma changes you. It changes your brain and it changes the way you react to things. It creates what we call triggers where what would be normal circumstances for most people are something that upset you or create anxiety or depression. And so when I started to understand the challenges involved in employment with trauma can come into play, if you think about it, how, how can one really succeed in a workplace if you hear a loud noise or if someone gets a little too close to you or speaks to you aggressively and if you react in a way that is deemed to be unacceptable, you're probably gonna lose your job. And so I then truly, when I had that recognition, it was like, okay, so this, this is not just teaching someone a job. This is a bigger piece of helping them really recognize what their experience have, have changed them and then how they can navigate successfully in things like employment and other, other spaces. So that's, that's when the work got deep <laughs> and where um, I brought a, my entrepreneurial spirit to, to the work. So as an entrepreneur, I consider myself to be somebody who not is a problem solver, so I, but also you see a gap. You see gaps in systems or whatever, and then you come up with creative ways to fill them. And so when I was working for the coalition, with this particular project, uh, I built a program based on, these are the gaps in what I see is working for these people, what supports are around them, and then this is how we can fill them within this space of employment. And when that project ended, and I looked back on the successes we had, and we were very successful in our, quote, numbers or outcomes, where the number of people that we successfully employed and moved on to other employment and they maintained the employment 
which is a huge piece. Um, our, our numbers were, were much higher than what we were seeing in the programs around us. And it was mainly in that sustainability piece. So the business model didn't work of the social enterprise. And it basically didn't work that entirely with the fiscal responsibility of a nonprofit to run a business, to run a program and all of that. And so again, coming out of that experience and realizing, okay, so we had this great program that really helped folks, but we had a business model that was, was weak and, and was not able to sustain the program. So what do we do with that? And I realized, well, I think there are ways that we can form partnerships with the business community because they need employees. They need um, folks that can be loyal employees. And, and there are industries, especially right now, we see in the manufacturing, retail, and hospitality sectors where they really need employees. Um, and so that if they're willing to invest and in some time and energy, they can really create a workspace where they can successfully hire these folks and have them be loyal retained employees. So that kind of started the Reciprocity Collective. I uh, started in 2016, and I'll be honest with you, mainly because I was sh kind of shopping this idea around other nonprofits, and the, the response I got was, that's such a great idea, and you really are addressing what we see, but a, too expensive, B, too difficult, C, nobody's doing that. So we're not, that we're risk averse to that. So I finally arrived at, well, if I really think this work needs to be done, I guess we have to start, we have to start a nonprofit, which was not really my first choice. <laughs> it's a very, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, process to have a new idea to approach an old problem and to start it with pretty much not anything else other than your own resources and your energy and idea. But here we are two and a half years later, almost three years later, and we have uh, up and running programs. We are becoming more and more known in the community for the approach that we have and the success that we have in working with our folks. The partnerships we've developed not only between other nonprofits to share resources and to not be siloed and, and, and just working with their folks in one space, but how to really gather the community resources to help support our folks and our ability to integrate workplaces and really introduce them to what I feel are really strong HR practices, but they're trauma-informed. They're, they're creating communications and systems that I'm going to qualify as safe that are very effective spaces for folks coming out of communities of homelessness and poverty to really start work and to be successful. And then on the other side, we're supporting the individuals we work with in the coaching and skills development, soft skills development that we think is important for them to succeed in all areas of their life. So it's this kind of multi-pronged approach. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, the, the causes of homelessness and poverty are really complex. Um, not, there's, no, there's very few generalizations one can make about it. And so to my view, the way we approach them has to be very relational, relationship-based, 
really understanding from each perspective what brought them to that space and what we need to do to help bring them out of it. So relationships are where we really start. And also it really has, the work needs to be guided from the voices of those that we're serving. Um, we can sit in one space and say, this is what we think is going to work for you. This is what we think happened to you. This is what, you know, what we think, what we think, what we think. Now, granted, we can bring experience, we can bring data, we can bring all kinds of training to the table, but ultimately that, those are just tools that we're going to use to listen to what has happened with this person and what they need and let that guide the work that we do. And so, you know, I realize I've touched on about 50 points here, <laughs> which tells you the complexity of the work. Um, but I think if I had to say, what's the most valuable thing that you do in the community? Yes, we have employment. Yes, we do this. We do that. The most valuable thing we do is that we give empowerment and we listen to the voices of those we serve. Now, that could be yeah. true of almost any, um, any, any of us as we work. We, we, can, we can say, oh, yeah, I know what your problems are. But really, it's a two-way, it's a two-way street. Give us an idea. Now, you said there's trauma, um, and we think of trauma in terms of military, but some of the homeless are military. Mm -hmm. We have 21 million veterans, and we have a lot with PTSD that are on the street because there's no place for them. And there's right. no real support system. And seven, uh, 22 commit suicide every 72 minutes, 22 a day, somebody commits suicide that's a veteran. So there's, there's a whole lot of complexity with that kind of trauma. What is, um, are you working reciprocity collective works in Denver or the Denver area primarily, or what's the geographic footprint of your work? Um, it is in the Denver, the Metro Denver area. Um, our big hairy audacious goal of course, is that especially we're doing with our business partners and how to look at their workspaces and the other, we, we hope that spreads. I mean, some of our, one of our business partners is a national company. So that other um, venues within that company will start to adopt some of the things that we are training staff to do. Uh, but yes, we predominantly right now are in the, in the community. And we work with, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned veterans because it's that we work with some veterans. Uh, we, our work is, no, there are no barriers to who we work with. If, if there you have a need, we're, um, we don't have any real hoops you have to jump through other than to show up. Um, and the veterans are an interesting challenge in that great Skills, awesome work skills, as you can imagine. If they've been successful in the military, they understand structure, they understand rules, they understand um, that focus is needed. But yeah, through their experiences of combat and then add to it coming home to and having not necessarily the resource in which to process what they underwent. One of the, unfortunately, one of the things we've discovered with the veterans we work with is they don't in, they don't want to engage with the VA because they felt that those systems have not served them well. And so, a lot of some of the work we do, we have one young man that we just recently started working with, and um, 
he was just severely depressed and very concerned about suicide with him. And we found out about him actually from his mom who contacted us from Madison, Wisconsin, believe it or not, and asked us, we had no idea, we had never met this guy and asked us to contact him because she was worried about him. And so we did. And I left, you know, I, I wasn't sure. Of course, you know, I'm texting him and calling him and he has no idea who this person is. He's <laughs> like, hi, my name's Mary. And, uh, and I, I think I, you know, kind of said to him, you may not want to call me back, but I'm going to encourage you to call me back because number one, I'm probably going to keep calling you until you call me back. And number two, I can be very charming. So you might enjoy meeting me. You know, I was really trying to pull out all the stops as to how I could get, I knew the first step is I wanted to meet him so that make a connection and get started and fortunately he agreed to meet me for coffee and we pretty quickly I was felt so gratified that he felt comfortable enough with me to very quickly identify what was going on you know, the, and some of this was certainly out of my area of expertise so what reciprocity piece that we bring to it is I, I now have a network so I was able to contact a therapist that I knew specialized with veterans, and this was a, a gentleman of color. And that was important to him because he felt disconnected in the veterans community here in Colorado um, because he just wasn't seeing other veterans that he felt had a similar experience. So he connected him with that. Um, he needed furniture. He needed, you know, all the, he had just recently come out of homelessness. So we were able to really rally resources around him. And now I check in on him every week and we meet for coffee and see how things are going. And he's doing really well. He's, you know, it's not out of the woods completely yet, but doing really well. All right. So, let's, um, let's, of it. let's unpack. You, um, you've given us a lot of data here. Um, let's, let's look at um, leadership piece of this. You, you um, have a, an amazing track record and have impacted people's lives in a significant way. Um, so I want to, you, you talked about the collaborations and you talked about business support. Um, so talk about, um, a lot of leaders don't know how to create collaborative opportunities. We work in silos and I would guess uh, a large portion of your success, um, is, is partly your, your team of experts. And you said this wasn't particularly your skill set, Um, but, um, you do have people that do have contrasting skill sets to yours, but talk about your, how did you envision and facilitate this um, collaborative space that you now have? And it, who does it involve? Does it involve businesses? Does it involve the church communities does it involve social, um, uh, what do you call them? Rotary service organizations like a rotary. Um, so talk about the journey of envisioning what collaboration looks like, and how did you how did you um, step forward to make that happen? Um, so the, the entities that you mentioned, it's all of the above. This collaborative is all of the above. Um, so it, it came out slowly again in that problem solving space. I was new to the nonprofit sector when I started working for Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, and I was so intrigued by the difference in culture from the business to the nonprofit sector. Um, and I think the number, the, the, one of the things I saw was this extreme siloing of different agencies. 
And that's kind of built structurally by the funding sources. Um, there's such competition for funding that you almost feel like, you know, you have to have it all right here with me. And so I saw repetitive services where resources could have been shared to be more effective. Like let's, you specialize in this and you specialize in this and we don't have to all kind of specialize in everything. And so I, I didn't quite understand, I felt resources could be better used and your, your, your fiscal dollars could, your dollars could go further if you figured out how to collaborate and how to use each other's expertise. Um, and that you really had to move, remove the comp competitive nature of it from, the scenario, from it. I mean, we're, we're serving people. Um, we should all be competing to just do it really well, not necessarily competing against each other. So that, you know, so that was where it all started was, okay. And when I founded Reciprocity Collective, I, I think a lot of it was a knee-jerk reaction to what I was seeing in the human service sector that I didn't care for and that I felt wasn't serving our folks the best. So initially, admittedly, I was not, everyone kind of looked at me like, who are you? You know, um, you're, you're this business person who's been working for the coalition and now you're walking around trying to talk about this new approach. And I wasn't too worried about it. I just kept showing up, I guess is the best way to do it. I'd hear about a meeting and I'd show up and I'd introduce myself and talk a little bit. And then somebody would introduce me to this person. And then I didn't, I didn't refuse a coffee meeting. I didn't, uh, I, I went to every meeting. I, I met as many people as possible and just starting building the relationships and then making the connections. And I have to say the first year I was kind of like, I'm not much of a meeting person. I really am one of those. I want to just get and do the work. And so I, I was having all these meetings and I was just like, ah. Oh. And then I, all of a sudden, after a year, I started seeing it connect. Started seeing that collaboration work. You know, I was volunteering for different shelters so I could get to know the, part, the, the members there and get to know the staffs. So, and, you know, you just, I just jumped into the spaces I felt I wanted to bring together. And then by getting to know those folks, I now am able to, what I call navigate it, and community navigation is what it is. And so I'm able to connect it. And the cool thing is, is that these folks are now looking to me, like when they run into a challenge, they'll call me and say, hey, do you know anybody who's doing this? And I'll say, yes, I do. It's over here. And so I think there just needs to be, and I don't, I don't do anything radical other than just show up. <laughs> Try not to say something too stupid. Well, that's, that's radical, um, and you're, yeah. <laughs> you're so right that um, charities, um, I hate the word nonprofit because it's a lie, uh, charities, yeah. <laughs> and, and you said you're an entrepreneur, we're, we're social entrepreneurs, we're making a difference in people's mm -hmm. lives, but that you stepped up and you realized, uh, and you said earlier in this, this interview, that you saw a place that needed, it was a gap or a vacuum or something, and you filled it. There was a need. I think you said there was a need. You filled it. Well, there's also a need. And how do we pull groups together? Um, we're we're half the halfway mark, and I I know my colleague Russell is anxious to get in here and ask some really. He asked the tough question, so here it comes. Uh -oh. <laughs> a good interviewer, but I'm I'm going to give him some some mic time because he's got some thoughts. We're we're looking at um, how do we inspire other leaders to 
look at the things they haven't thought about. And this, this collaborative piece um, is really a gap in almost every city where I've been. And where mm-hmm. I sit in Lynchburg, Virginia, you know, we have the same issue. People aren't aware that it's there, though. They're doing their work. Like, there's a number of charities that feed people. Um, and and what, what more could they do if they'd kind of work together? And there, there's, there's a geography to cover, but there's also there's some holes in the service. So anyway, Russell, what are you thinking? And how, how, what do you want to know from this uh, really wise person that started? I'm, I'm impressed that you left being a chef. Uh, <laughs> I'm a home chef. I think, I'm, I think I'm a gourmet, but, you know, my wife likes it. So that's all that counts. That's it. It's, that's true. Russell, you're on. Well, yeah, uh, this lady is everywhere, and, and I've met her, and, <laughs> and I, just, I love hanging out with Mary, and she's all over the community, and the persistence with which she goes about doing everything is something that everybody can can grasp, and she knows everybody, <laughs> and uh, it's because she's willing to go anywhere and talk to anybody, and it's open, uh, that's how I met her, and she's been to my Optimist Club more than once. And uh, how I never thought, let's get her on the nonprofit exchange, uh, I don't know. But her work is deep. And, and there's some pretty common mistakes that I made on the front end of going into this type of work. And I see other people making it. And the first one is assuming, oh, okay, I've looked at this thing and I know exactly what these people need. <laughs> and, and the other thing is to not just with where people are, but how you provide a solution, maybe like such as getting jobs. I know that the initial goal uh, was to connect people with employment, but it's so much more than just money and economics. So speak to those errors in our thinking and and how you've managed to, to navigate those and to help people sort of turn their thinking around in those errors of thought. Yes, you're right in that, you know, it started in employment and that still is the core of what we do. But the recognition was that um, that was just one piece of the puzzle. I like employment has such meaning to people. For those of us who've been steadily employed our entire lives and kind of been surrounded by folks who've been steadily employed, I don't think we really connect with what the lack of employment can mean to somebody and how much it disconnects them from community. You know, employment gives us a a space. It gives us a commonality with our coworkers or with an industry. It gives us a sense of purpose. It can give us confidence. We are looked upon with respect. And when you don't have that, boy, it talk about really pushing my, I have a friend who calls it, it's you're out of the lifeboat, you know? And so you couple, and then, so you mix that in with homelessness and, and all that piece. Um, I recognized right away when I started working in the employment sector is how valuable employment was to these folks. And so it really helped them want to engage and, and also how much of an incentive it was. So I, you know, I was like, okay, we can, we can get, bring folks to the table that might not normally want to talk to me or really look at, their, look at the challenges they have, but they want to work. And if I can help them connect with, it's important for you to be, if, if you want to be successful at work, it's important for you to look at this, that we, this is where we need to work. 
And so that's when I really recognized the power that employment held. And, you know, I really, I, I still hear comments from folks when they say, when they have a general thing about someone who's homeless and they're lazy or they don't want to work. And I have found the exact opposite to be true. Um, what happens is, though, imagine decades or even a couple of years of just not succeeding at work because of things that you're not even aware are going on with you. And you're feeling like a failure. You're probably not likely. Your fear is going to keep you from jumping in. Um, and so, so much of what we do. So I, I laugh because, you know, when we meet people, so we go to shelters. We partner with different shelters around Denver, and we just kind of show up for a couple hours a week, and they know what time we're coming. And it's funny, sometimes the first couple times I'll meet somebody, we won't even talk about jobs. And my, I don't, my approach is not, so you're looking for a job, because that is scares people, that can scare a lot of folks away. I just, I heard, I learned that a lot of, I've learned all this by paying attention, you know, boy, that didn't work. <laughs> Nobody talked to me when I was just talking about jobs. So our approach is, what's going on with you? And so it starts with, we, and, and so like, I remember one, I had some, an employment meeting at uh, an organization called the Dolores Project, which is an amazing shelter for women and transgender individuals. So we had our first employment session and uh, four people showed up and we were sitting around and we sat together for about an hour and a half. And I remember we finished and I went over and talked to the case manager who hadn't joined us. It was just me and the, and the members. And she said, well, how did it go? And I laughed. I said, we had a great conversation. We didn't talk a minute about jobs, but it was great. We talked about grandchildren. We talked about you know, all these things. But the next time I went, then Suddenly it was like, well, you know, I might want to work. And then it just, it built from there. Um, so, but in that process, you understand that employment is not a solo thing. It's not an island unto itself. Frankly, any more than just housing is unto, unto itself. Any more than mental health is unto itself. Any more than trauma is unto itself. That when we are looking at these deeper societal challenges, you know, when we talk about solving homelessness, it's not a lack of a home only. It's, that's a start. But there are all these other things that are entwined. And until you're ready to really look, see it that way and understand that you have a place in it and the most effective work you can do is by collaborating with everybody else with their places in it and sharing information and sharing resources, then to me, that's when the solutions start to come together. Um, on your team, do you have um, uh, mental health professionals, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, counselors, any of those? We have two pro bono. Um, we're still very small. <laughs> so I have actually right now, I have two uh, graduate student social they're in the master's program, second year master's program of social work. And then I have two community pro bono therapists, psychologists that work with our participants. And then there's also, there are some clinics that do some pro bono work with us. So, you know, and, and they also in the entrepreneurial spirit, it's like, what can we do that doesn't cost us much? <laughs> so that's been part of it too. And I'm so grateful for the folks who volunteer their time to us and they do, and they recognize when they hear me speak, like I can jump in here. 
and they'll ask, what can we do? And I'll say, hey, I need, I need pro bono hours. And they sign up. And so, you know, you can't be afraid to answer when they say, what can I do? You tell them. <laughs> well, I would imagine there's, there's some um, significant issues with people's, um, what my friend, psychologist uh, David Bruder says, shadow. You know, there's, there's things in our psyche that hold, hold us back because we think we're not worthy, we've been damaged, there's some imprint from our family of origin. So mm-hmm. people trained to see that and to help people walk through that, 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 that area. So you founded this organization, and there's a challenge being a founder, and I'm one, we're guilty of uh, over-functioning, doing too much in the organization. So how do you balance your passion and, and share that passion with others and get like board members, volunteers, staff, you list some staff on your, on your, on your website. How do you um, balance your own zeal and get out of the way, basically, is the bottom line. How, how as a founder, we have unique, unique challenges, and I'm, I'm guilty. So how do you yeah. manage that as a founder and a leader of this organization? I call it, it's founderitis, it's called, and we see it all over the place. And you, you can see it, especially in the human service sector. Um, and frankly, sometimes founders don't get out of the way. Um, they, they, they stay too long in it or it becomes too much about them. And I think that's a danger. I think it's a danger we all face. And so I actually, I'll never, I'll never forget the first couple of times our board met and I was already talking about founderitis. I was very concerned about, you know, because like, I've seen it in its worst manifestations, unfortunately, where it is, gets to the point where it starts to inhibit the quality work of an organization. And so I was very conscious of this from the get-go. And I'm like, you know, I, I, this can't be about me. I get that. I do think that start an organization, it does kind of take that one loud person running around, you know, um, trying to get people inspired. But then there, there is a point where you start to recognize, okay, this, and it, I don't think it, it doesn't happen in a complete way of like all of a sudden, oh, I'm stepping out. But there are, okay, I can step back from this part. I can step back from this part. And I think that it's something that we, anyone who founds an organization really has to keep at the top of their radar. Um, you and and I think I and I have moments where I'll get myself really tangled up and I'll realize, oh wait a minute, this is I'm making this about me, you know. I'll get my, my I'll get bent out of joint about something and I'll realize that my anger and frustration and everything is because something something hurt, you know, I felt hurt or I felt dissed or something. The way I get past that, I was like, man, this isn't about you. None of this is about you. Um, you're the facilitator. You, you may have this idea, and you, you're just the connector and the facilitator. And if you start making it about you, you're not going to do this work very well. And I think that's where we just have to remind ourselves over and over again. Because by, by human nature, we always want to make it about us. You know? oh, and we yeah. just need to take that step back. It's our baby. <laughs> It's our baby. We gave birth to this. Russell, what are you thinking there? Are you smiling? 
Yes, it's it's, it's marvelous to to really kind of have these epiphanies where you realize that uh, you know I might be in my own way here. And uh, one of the beauties of having worked for Native American tribal community is that when people walk through the door, I saw a whole person. So it wasn't necessarily about whether or not they had a job or equipment or wanted to start a business. It's about how do I get my kids through school? How do I heat my house? How do I have a safe, uh, safe, clean place to live? There's just everything. The whole dynamic walks in. And you have to look at a whole person, not just compartmentalize who you see right in front of you. And that really changes the narrative. Now, trying to explain that dynamic to people in the general community was like pulling teeth because people made assumptions about Native Americans without really knowing the full dynamic of how they fit in. And there were people that wanted to help and quite frankly, they just didn't know what to do. Uh, and they didn't know what they didn't know. So with that said, um, what are some of the things, when it comes to homelessness and poverty, people make all sorts of assumptions uh, a lot of people look, they see people roaming around and they say, well, you know, we want to help them, but we, we just don't really want them in our neighborhood. If we don't have to see it, we'd like to have something done, but, uh, and they make assumptions and they look at how difficult it is to work with uh, populations, so they make assumptions uh, about that. So a lot of people fall into what we call a cycle of helplessness by making these assumptions. Oh, well, it's just too big. Maybe the government will do something about it. What are the conversations that we need to be having in communities, uh, you know, wherever we are? What sort of conversations need to be taking place? And what kind of things can people do that they may not have thought of? Those are, that's a great question. Um, you know, we have fallen into I think so many of us uh, thinking the government will take care of it or the nonprofits will take care of it. Frankly, I think that's where it's been sitting for a long time. These two entities are going to take care of this. And, you know, I think that was a good shot, but they had their shot and it's not working. <laughs> you know, we, we still have homelessness. We still, so, I mean, again, so what we've been doing isn't, hasn't been working. We see an ever increasing numbers of, of homelessness. And so it's, so that would tell me, that tells me that, wow, we gotta get other people involved. We gotta get other ideas on the table. We gotta bring other brains into this. And how do we bring those brains in? Yeah, how do we get them to connect and remove themselves from whatever stereotypes they have about people who are homeless? And the number one piece, it's why I'm part of that Storytellers Network when you first met me. I think most people, and this was my own experience too, you know, when I went into that first experience of working with folks who've experienced homelessness, I had my own stuff about what that was going to look like. But you sit down with somebody who has experienced homelessness and you get to know them as a person and you hear their story. I don't care if I was sitting in front, you know, me as a 50 year old white woman sitting in front of a young man who's an African American member of a gang, spent a lot of his life in the system. There wasn't any, 
there were times in his story, it was my story too. I mean, there, there are connection points all over the place. And I think if we, the more we hear the voices who've experienced this and we, we let them tell their stories and we're going to find connection. And then those of us who then hear it and say, okay, what can I do? Where can I jump in? Um, there are so many spaces that one can jump in. You know, find organizations that you think are doing compelling work. Um, and then I, I do a really simple one. So the first step, smile at the person. Make eye contact, it, eye contact with the guy who is maybe sitting under the bush in your neighborhood that doesn't, you know, is unhoused. It's amazing Russell, you really named it. You know, whoever walked through that door, they were a whole person. And boy, we forget that. They, we are not the entities of, we, we are just not one or two things. None of us are. And we are certainly not just about one of our life's experiences. I don't want to be remembered about the idiot teenager I was, you know. Um, does anybody want to be, if, if someone is, has been homeless, is that all they want to be identified as? But it's really easy to do that. The homeless person. It's why my language says people who've experienced homelessness, because they're not a homeless person. They're a person who's, who've had some different experiences. So let's start by shifting our language. We're doing it in the, in the nonprofit world. It would be great to have everyone really think about that. Don't, don't label them. It's just something they've experienced and they've come through it or maybe they're still experiencing it and it has affected them. But where are we sitting with judgment about it? You know, this whole thing of, oh, well, you know, maybe they have an addiction or maybe they have a mental health challenge or whatever. I'm sorry. I know people living in suburbia who have those things too. And so, you know, we've got to just kind of remove the labeling as much as possible and really recognize and, and bring humanity back into it. Um, so the simple thing I'm talking about, you walk down the street and in Denver, you know, I live in a, an urban neighborhood and my neighbors are unhoused as much, you know, I consider my neighbors the guys on the corner that I know are struggling and maybe living outside as much as the person living in the home next to me. And when I walk down the street, and I say, hi, good morning, how are you doing today? And it, it's amazing. It's, it can really change. Because if you really know, you know, they've become invisible, folks who've experienced illnesses. But we're really good as a society of like, why don't you just stay over there? You know, I, it's too uncomfortable because it makes us uncomfortable. Because we're not sure what to do. And my thing is, well, break, the, break through the discomfort. Start with saying hi. Smile. And then... I, you know, I, my thing is, open. if you open yourself up and start that process, it'll come to you what you can do. <laughs> well, a lot of, um, you know, our, my favorite anchor definition of leadership is a leader is an influencer. And mm -hmm. I can't imagine uh, why somebody wouldn't want to step up and work with you. You're such a powerful influencer and you have such passionate about what you do and lots of insight. So we're, we're doing a wrap here. I'm going to do a, um, a sponsor um, section and then throw it back to you, Mary, just for people out there that are in the trenches. They might be a clergy. We got clergy on this, this webinar listening. Might be a nonprofit executive director. It might be somebody that's a board chair. 
Um, you know, what, what advice would you have for, for those people around some of these themes that you've articulated? How did you cut through? Because we're coming the last five minutes of the interview. How would you suggest they make a breakthrough in any of those areas? And then we'll let Russell close us out um, before the top of the hour so we can stay within our, our commitment. But this, we could talk all day. You've got such a, a wealth of ideas and your journey has been really amazing. So thank you f- for that. So and our sponsor today is, is ourselves, our own Center Vision, a leadership online community for community, community builders. And Mary, if you're not a, a member, you should join. That's where you filled out the interview form. But our community for community builders is a resource hub for people who feel like they're working all alone. Well, you get to be connected with uh, and so there's, there's a hub of information there. There's a hub of training opportunities. There's replays of interviews such as this and webinars. And there's lots of curriculum. There's, there's forums on, on topics. And we're just, we're just uh, ramping up some of these initiatives. But there are a lot of ways for people who feel like they're all alone to be connected with others. And we're, we're in this, this whole piece of collaboration that you've in interjected into this conversation is a lot more powerful than, than many people realize. And so it's, it's how we collaborate, um, how we collaborate um, together. Now, John has raised his hand. So John, do you have a question? Let me see. He wants to uh, uh, allow to talk. Okay, hang on. Let me see. John, we can hear you. Unmute your mic. John, can you? You're unmuted, John. Yes. You have a question. You have a question or comment. You're in New Mexico. I am in New Mexico, and I am a sustaining donor to the Reciprocity Project, and love (laughs) to have other listeners. Join in on that. I give something every month and it comes out of my checking account and it's a very, very simple way to do it. And I think that everyone should come on board. Well, thank you for that. And you know, thank you, John. that's a very important principle that sustainers donate every month. And exactly. That not only are you financially involved, but you are emotionally involved, connected. Uh, so uh, certainly, it's it's um, the reciprocity connection. What is the the web link? Collective. So it's reciprocitycollective.org. The reciprocity. That's the word. Right. So um, so our yeah. question today is for our own Cinevision leadership. Uh, CineVisionLeadership.org is our online community. People can find you by going to the nonprofit exchange, which is the name for this interview thenonprofitexchange.org. Your video will be up uh, in the morning and it'll be on the podcast on Sunday. So uh, our invite is for people to come join the community where we meet people like Mary Putman. Mary, what closing thought or challenge or tip would you have for people? So our, our name is Reciprocity Collective and it's a mouthful, um, but the word reciprocity is a really cool word. Um, when we talk about collaboration, we talk about trying to avoid the siloing and the uh, kind of the holding close of resources and power. 
this is where reciprocity really comes into play. It's, you know, we give and we get. It's, a, it's an exchange that occurs in which everybody ends up with something that's good. Uh, and I think to just remember that uh, for those, and when you mentioned, you know, what to say to other founders and other people working in the trenches and, and how to kind of keep things going and keep yourself focused, it really truly is about relationships. I mean, it really comes down to recognizing who, why you're doing the work, who you're doing it for, seeing that those people for who they are as individuals, people with dreams and hopes and complexities just like you, building those relationships. That's where I get my power. That's what gets me up every morning. Um, yes, there are these bigger picture things that I'm always trying to look at and address, but when it really comes down to it, what charges me is these folks that are in my life and I'm in their life and, and how we can best just improve all of each other with that. And I realize that sounds, you know, that's not innovative. That's just, I don't know. <laughs> you know it's, um, it, it, it really, but it, we have to be reminded to do that. The way we talked about how the founder has to be reminded to step back. It's just remembering and re re why we're doing the work, who we're serving, and who they are as people. And that can really give you a lot of energy, a lot of love, a lot of hope to sustain the work that you want to do and to really help guide the work that you choose to do. Excellent stuff, Mary. Thank you so much for joining us here. Uh, we'll hope to see you in the Center Vision community, and we'll have links to uh, how to get in touch with you up uh, on the uh, site where we can you can subscribe to the nonprofit exchange on Stitcher and iTunes, among other platforms. Uh, we'd love to have you uh, submit an article. Of course, Sandy Birkenmeyer will, will be asking for an article. And Mary's developed some great tools in Close to Home, another organization we didn't have a chance to talk about. But she's built a set of tools that are phenomenal for collaboration. And I see Mary around in other groups that we're in, uh, not as frequently as I'd like to, but this year is uh, 2019 and want to make a big dent in what's going on in Denver. Uh, I'd love to see you again. Uh, again, the Center Vision community is here for you to join. So at centervisionleadership.org. Uh, thank you all for joining us again on the Nonprofit Exchange. We'll be here again at the same time next week with another phenomenal leader in the nonprofit space to talk about how to make a difference in your community. This is Russell Dennis signing off for this week. <laughs>